0: The Space Show podcast will be on its annual summer hiatus for six weeks. In its place, we are pleased to present our summer series, Lunar Science in the Artemis Era. Lunar Science focuses on the science to be done on and around the Moon by both robotic missions and the crewed Artemis missions. Lunar Science.
1: The surface is fine and powdery. I can pick it up loosely with my toe. It does adhere in fine layers, like powdered charcoal, to the sole and sides of my boots. But I can see footprint of my boots and the tread in the fine
0: sandy particles.
2: Welcome to Luna Science the series in which we discuss the scientific investigation of the Moon and its environment in the Artemis era. ISRU is a term which means In-Situ Resource Utilisation. Making use of the materials you find at your destination to make not only your food and water, but also to build habitats, power systems and transport. That is our topic for Episode 49. Gerard Sanders is the ISRU Systems Capability Lead at NASA Headquarters. In August of 2021, he discussed the challenges ahead for the Artemis project.
0: So I'm going to talk about what is ISRU and and the challenges for developing and integrating them. Um, Many of them are questions that have been raised and discussed already. To begin with, I think we're all pretty much aware of the Artemis program and and its intent, uh, returning astronauts to the the moon. Um, What's really important for ISRU, though, is... Uh, a couple of items. One is obviously learning to live and work on the moon, but um, involving commercial and international partners to make this happen is extremely important. So the Space Policy Directive 1, the Artemis Accords that were just discussed all play into this. Next chart. So what is ISRU? We define it as, in general, uh, prospect to product. It involves any hardware or operations that uh, harness and utilize in-situ resources to make products and services. Um, ISRU involves multiple disciplines and elements uh, by definition, it doesn't exist on its own. It needs a customer for the product, so so that interaction is is, is very important. And for our lunar activities, we basically have three primary um, objectives. One is to sustain and grow the lunar surface exploration program. Um, one is to reduce the risk and prepare for human exploration of Mars. But the third one, again, is how do we expand, uh, both terrestrial, uh, economics as well as, um, into the cislunar sphere. When we talk about ISRU, we break it down into four major categories. The, uh, uh, destination reconnaissance and resource assessment. How do you acquire the resources, acquisition, uh, isolation and preparation, um, processing those resources into mission commodities and then also supporting making mission commodities for manufacturing and construction. Uh, There are also some cross-cutting aspects such as planetary simulants and test facilities that uh, we are also supporting. ISRU needs to be considered as part of a larger architecture. Um, we need communications to and from, you know, the Earth and the local. Uh, we need extensive power capabilities, uh, transportation to and from the sites with navigation aids, most likely, loading and offloading um, aspects, fuel and support services. We'll need maintenance and repair over time, whether it's uh, crew or robotics. And when we deal with the crew, we'll have to deal with living quarters, roads, and and construction aspects. All of this to help us coordinate our mining activities, which include the excavation, the processing, uh, dealing with the tailings, as well as our product storage and distribution. From an ISRU perspective, we break down lunar resources into two bins. The regolith and the volatiles that may exist in the permanently shadowed craters. There's been fantastic discussions about that already. Um, but we, are, since we are looking at the south poles uh, in particular as uh, one of our important destinations, uh, we're considering the highland regolith as well as what might be in the permanently shadowed craters in our plans. We have four major development and implementation implementation challenges. The first being, what are the resources there? Do they exist? What form? What uncertainties do, uh, are associated with them? And we have technical challenges. You know, can we economically uh, feasibly excavate and process these these resources? Um, the energy, the life, the performance. Um, how reliable does this hardware need to be? Uh, we have operational challenges, the extreme environments, the temperatures, uh, especially in permanently shadowed craters. The fact that we're operating in a lower gravity um, affects our, our uh, you know, surface interactions and, and liquid solid interactions and such. We have to operate potentially for extremely long periods of time without crew. This might not necessarily be as important for the moon because of the short uh, communication delays, but gets incredibly important when we start thinking about Mars. And then we're going to have to start up and shut down our systems repeatedly, uh, most likely, especially at the beginning until we have uh, huge amounts of power. Um, and then we have integration challenges. Um, systems need to be designed around using ISRU commodities, uh, and so we need to work this at, at an architectural level. To dive a little bit more into the challenges ISRU is specifically interested in, obviously the severe environments, the, the brace of regolith, the extreme temperatures, as well as the temperature changes that occur if you drive in and out of permanently shadowed craters and then operating in low gravity as i mentioned the granular flow is different liquid sloshing when you kick up dust it settles differently your inertial aspects have to be taken into consideration and such
2: nasa's gerard sanders Before you start planning to use the resources of the Moon, you had better know what they are and what they're made of. Insteps steps, BECA, B-E-C-A, the Bulk Elemental Composition Analyzer.
3: Hi, everybody. My name is Mauricio. I am a, a postdoctoral fellow at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. And today I will talk to you about our instrument called BECA for Bulk Elemental Composition Analyzer, and how it can be used for lunar resources prospecting, specifically for um, measuring hydrogen on the surface and subsurface of the moon. Let me introduce the topic by showing this map based on data from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter mission that found water ice and uh, some other hydrogen-bearing minerals on permanently shadowed regions of the Moon, uh, and they are located at the Moon's poles. Uh, Now, recently, we also found other hydrogen-bearing minerals throughout the entire surface of the Moon. These two findings are very important because they could potentially be mined. These resources could be mined in order to produce drinking water, uh, breathable air, uh, and, for example, rocket fuel for future human colonies. The problem, however, is that these orbiters have a resolution of about 10 kilometers. And hence we still do not know whether this mining whether mining these valuable resources is economically feasible. And here is where uh, Becca comes in. Becca is a is a versatile instrument that can be placed on a rover or a lander. Here we have the the PNG, which is a pulse neutron generator. It produces neutrons uh, which they go everywhere, and some of them interact with the elements on the surface of the Moon or underneath, or directly underneath the rover, and and, uh, they produce secondary radiation. Gamma rays and scattered neutrons, specifically. And these gamma rays and secondary scattered neutrons can be detected uh, above the ground with the GRS or the NDs. GRS stands for gamma ray spectrometer and NDs for neutron detectors. Now, the, um, they give us complementary information about the, the, about the elements. For example, the neutron detectors are more sensitive to hydrogen. And the gamma ray spectrometer uh, is not only good to measure hydrogen, but it can uh, also measure minor and major elements. Uh, which inform the, uh, about the geochemistry of the moon. Each element has a unique energy and they can be identified that way. And the intensity of each of those elements here uh, gives us uh, an idea of how much of each of those elements exist, so the abundance. We work in close collaboration with Slamberg J technology uh, and they provide the neutron generator for Becca. So, in summary, Becca is a non destructive, versatile instrument that can allow us to measure um, hydrogen on the moon as well as other elements. Thank you.
2: Wherever humans go, they have an impact on the environment. Will the moon be any different? In Baltimore, Parvathi Prim of the Applied Physics Laboratory at Johns Hopkins University thinks not.
1: So I wanted to talk to you all today about some recent efforts towards understanding the impact of exploration on the lunar environment. So to start at the beginning with the big picture, planetary science, this adventure that all of us are involved in in some way or the other, is ultimately a search for answers to some of the really big questions. You know, where are we? How did we get here? Where do we go next? And I think over the next few decades, there is another question that's likely to become more and more important as we go to places we haven't been before and as we start to explore solar system worlds at increasingly closer range. And that's the question of how do we change, whether that's temporarily or permanently, the environments of those other worlds that we visit. Now, the moon is a cornerstone in solar system exploration in so many different ways. And so perhaps it's fitting that the moon may also be where we begin to answer that big question. And so keeping that big question in mind, I wanted to focus on a smaller question of what happens to the exhaust gases that are released when a spacecraft descends to land on the lunar surface. This is something that we recently modeled because it's a question of scientific interest. Understanding what happens to exhaust gases teaches us about how volatiles behave in the lunar environment. It's also of operational interest. If you're planning a mission and you want to know how far to rove or how long to wait before measuring volatiles, it's important to know what happened to the volatiles that you brought with you. And so we modeled the descent of a Chang'e-3 class lander And it descended to land at 70 degrees south latitude at around 7 a.m. lunar local time. As the spacecraft descends, it fires its thrusters and it releases water vapor. And we model the gas dynamics of the expansion of that water vapor into the lunar exosphere. We focused on the late stage of the descent. And if you have sharp eyes, we focus on the water vapor component of the exhaust. And we ran two parallel simulations in which the interaction of water molecules with the lunar regolith is defined by binding energies of 0.5 and 0.7 electron volts. And so you can see that in this particular scenario, we have an area that's around two kilometers by two kilometers covered by more than a monolayer of water molecules. And so that's between 10 to the 15 and 10 to the 18 molecules per square centimeter. This was a landing at 70 degrees south, Of course, if you were to land closer to the poles, you can see that some of the water released during the descent would likely fall back directly within PSRs. You can convert the surface density shown here to a weight percentage, but that's a little bit of a fraught exercise because it relies on assumptions about how deep those volatiles are deposited within the uppermost layer of the regolith. Uh, And so ultimately, as we've mentioned several times during this workshop, deposition is likely to be superficial, but that doesn't mean that it's unimportant because all of the remote sensing data that we have over the past few decades, uh, with the exception of neutrons and radar, are also sensitive to that uppermost uh, millimeter to nanometers of the lunar surface. And we know that surface processes are of tremendous scientific interest in their own right. And our current best understanding of the physics that are going on here is that water tends to absorb to the cold lunar night side. When the surface warms up sufficiently, that might be at sunrise, it might be later in the day, those water, water molecules might desorb, and they might migrate over the warm dayside surface, some of them eventually reaching the pole. But I think the key takeaway here is that you'll see that those exospheric and surface deposition patterns are very different depending on what kind of binding energy we assume. So we continue our simulations for two lunar days, so two months. And we notice that two lunar days after landing, around 10 to 30 percent of the water vapor that was released remains either absorbed to the lunar surface, mostly on the night side, with a smaller amount remaining in the exosphere. In the long run, most water is ultimately destroyed by solar ultraviolet radiation. Um, and the rest, in this case around 20 percent, tends to accumulate mostly at south polar coal traps but some water does pop and make its way all the way to the North Pole. If this does scale to some extent with lander mass and proximity to the poles, so if we have heavier landers that are landing closer to the poles, um, the persistence of those exos volatiles is likely to be more significant. And to put some numbers um, out there, some of the human landing systems currently under development are um, anticipated to burn between a thousand to a million kilograms of rocket fuel releasing in the case of the fuel shown here, H2O, CO2, and perhaps other combustion products. And speaking of other combustion products, they are there. In fact, water might be among the least volatile of some of the species that you might expect to see generated uh, by spacecraft exhaust. Those species have a range of different lifetimes. They're resistant to solar ultraviolet to varying degrees. They interact differently with the surface. This is something we're still exploring in detail, but my colleague, Dana Hurley, has an excellent LPSC abstract from a few years ago, which should give you an idea of of some of the different kinds of behavior we might expect to see. One important thing to note is that models like this do rely on our current best understanding of how volatiles interact with the lunar surface. And that's a question that we still don't quite fully understand. And so there is that uncertainty underlying the kind of predictions you get from a model like this. I think the most important point on this slide is the last one. When we think about Volatiles at the lunar poles, when we think about doing science at the lunar poles, it is not all about this hypothetical road cut that exposes massive buried subsurface ice. We don't know if that exists. But what we do know is that the surface itself, at even the finest scales, is truly fascinating. And understanding surface processes and understanding the invisible, understanding exospheric transport that may or may not deliver volatiles um, to the poles in the past and present. Those are integral components of putting together the lunar volatile story, and in making measurements and trying to understand those things, I would make the case that accounting for exos volatiles is an important thing to do. Taking a step back again, um, I thought it might be instructive, at least for me, to try and put together an analogy for the situation that we find ourselves in. So imagine that we've discovered a library that contains books that we haven't read before. We actually don't yet know how many books there are, how old they are, or what stories they tell. Some of us would like to read those books or preserve them for others to read. Some of us would like to sell the books or use the paper to write new stories. Neither of these things is inherently better than the other. And some of us, quite rationally, would be interested in doing both of those things. Complicating the situation a little bit, there's a possibility that some of those books might contain a few pages that are so fragile that they might crumble if we examine them with the technology we have at our disposal today. And so the question before us is, what do we do next? And just as importantly, who gets to decide? I wanted to leave you with two thoughts. The first is that measurements can be powerful. Monitoring the lunar exosphere and the surface during and after future lunar landings is an important thing to do for so many reasons. It helps us to assess the impact of spacecraft operations on the lunar environment, it also helps us put together the story of the past, present and future of the lunar volatile system. The final thought that I wanted to leave you with is this idea that when we have these discussions about what is worth protecting and what deserves consideration, our views, the different views we bring to the table on that topic are rooted in a sense of place sometimes in whether we think of the moon as an open frontier that's there for the taking Or whether we relate to the world around us and the universe in different ways. Since heritage sites were on the agenda for the meeting today, I thought it was worth mentioning that there is a case that can be made that when it comes to heritage, this potential billion year record of solar system volatile history could be seen as at least as important a part of our collective heritage as any historical landing site. These are strange and beautiful places we haven't been before. And they have a value that goes beyond how useful they are to us, whether that's to our science or our commerce. And I think all of us recognise in that some some level. And I think it's perhaps one of the more important things we should keep in mind as we look up at the night sky and as we go to the moon and travel beyond. So on that philosophical note, I will end.
2: The views of Parvati Prim. In October of 2020, Marnie Rosenthal was an undergraduate student at Columbia University. Here, it's pointed out that spacesuits release water.
4: Thank you so much for having me. My name is Marnie Rosenthal. I'm a current undergraduate at Barnard College of Columbia University studying astrophysics. And I'm working with Dr. Pascal Lee um, from the SETI Institute. And today I'm gonna to talk to you about EVA water release. So, as we know, the Artemis missions will be sending astronauts to explore lunar South Pole regions for water ice. However, our current spacesuit design released significant amounts of H2O. So, this poses a a concern um, because we don't want to be contaminating these regions. So, it's really important for us to characterize our water release in detail to understand our own contamination of the moon and identify ways to mitigate and minimize our contamination. So, this is important, not only for from a planetary protection standpoint, but also from the standpoint of making sure that we have a good assessment of the water concentrations on the moon. um, As well as an in situ resource um, utilization standpoint. So if we're bringing our own water to the moon, we don't want to then try and exploit water resources as significant on the moon as we once thought. Um, In addition, it's also very expensive to fly all this water to the moon that's only going to be wasted in our EVAs. So in the figure um, you can see a blue halo around an Apollo 12 astronaut. Now this is controversial um, as to what this blue halo actually is, but one uh, interpretation has been that this is actually vented water coming out of the suit. Um, And it's important to realize that even if this halo isn't water venting from the suit, spacesuit venting is still a valid concern that must be considered. Our current suit releases uh, about a pound of water per hour, um, which amounts to about a gallon of water per eight hour EVA. This water, vent- water release comes from three main sources. The first is the suit water membrane evaporator or swimming. The second is the rapid cycle amine bed or RCA. And the third is suit leakage. Release of water along with the metabolic load of the astronaut, as well as solar incidence and power output. So if the astronaut is really working hard, they're creating a lot of water that's then being vented to the atmosphere of the moon, and in the figure you can see a simulated heat output for a MARS EVA and how it varies over time. So the first source of venting is the suit water membrane evaporator or swimming. Its purpose is to keep the astronaut cool. So it takes the metabolic heat produced by the astronaut and turns it into water vapor that is vented into space, um, into the lunar exosphere. This is. Uh, by far the largest source of water venting. It is about a pound of water per hour, so most of what's being vented. Um, And this venting comes out of two ports on the back of the portable life support system, um, and it's a continuous source of venting. The second source of venting is the rapid cycle amine, or RCA bed. Its purpose is to remove CO2 from the suit so that the astronaut isn't breathing in their own carbon dioxide. This is two to three orders of magnitude of venting smaller than swimming. So this amounts to about uh, 0.01 pounds per hour. So it's significantly less, but still um, a source of venting that should be considered. And unlike the swimming mechanism, this vents um, in bursts of water vapor, not continuously. And this comes out the same two ports on the uh, backpack of the PLSS. So the last source of water release is suit leakage. This is an unintentional release of water from the suit. It is the smallest source of water release. And unlike the SWIMI or the RCA, we don't know exactly where this leakage is coming from because the geometry may be very complex. Um, because of this, we've decided recommendations for the Artemis missions um, in order to understand our own impact on the lunar environment and our own release of water from spacesuits. Um, this is of course, of greatest concern inside PSRs um, and in the polar regions. So before launch, we recommend uh, measuring, modeling, and understanding water release from spacesuits, and using these um, findings in order to create uh, mitigation strategies uh, to help us prevent contaminating sensitive regions.